0: Consummate Athlete seeks health, community, and adventure through movement.
1: And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life.
0: Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real life consummate athletes.
1: We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going?
0: It is going well. Yes, we're back. We're still fighting the good fight here. Uh, Yeah, it's good. It's been tough. I think we're getting to that sort of mid-summer, if not past that, if I do dare say. And yeah, it's tough. I think traditionally I caught myself, right? Like usually after the big race of July, you know, nationals or whatever, we take maybe a week off, you know, even completely off the bike depending on how hard we've been driving, right? And I think for a lot of people, whether it's work or training, Uh, that, that vacation, that, that week off that transition week has not likely happened. So I, I took that, we went hiking there and I left my bike behind, I think for a good five days plus a recovery spin. So, and it was good. And honestly, I felt so much better back on the bike.
1: Yeah. I just felt really tired. That was a long hike.
0: Well, it was, the hike was not necessarily restful, but I think the switch up and you know, what body parts are getting stressed and uh you know just even the mental break right so i think that's again from a work perspective and then also just training i think that's a a reminder that a lot of us do you know whether it's a planned training intervention or you know family vacation just sort of interrupts your training for the better
1: yeah i actually couldn't believe with hiking you know it's the first time we've been really offline pretty much since we came home in in march right like normally yeah admittedly i'm like one of those wake up and check my phone people but usually we have like enough travel and stuff sort of interspersed travel and racing and everything that we have days where we're not really tuned in to yeah to what's going on but since we came back in march like we haven't really had any of those offline days i would say so sure kind of go yeah going into the woods and so even
0: another type of sort of uh break or vacation is yeah. sort of that like digital detox almost right where you're like maybe on race day you don't check the the socials in the email uh at least for a period of time right maybe from when you go to bed till post-race
1: yeah exactly so i just yeah i found it really really helpful and Honestly, I always get nervous. I, I tell Peter I get nervous about going on vacation and going offline because I'm actually like genuinely concerned that I'm going to struggle to get back online, like right. to want to, because I'm going to realize like, ah, I just want to move to the woods. Uh, luckily, that did not happen. I was still, I was actually, you know, excited to kind of get back to it. And we got out of the woods. And actually, you can head over to consummateathlete.com. I did a bit of a, a list about some of our new uh, camping upgrades for this summer. we we're, we're, I feel like it's been. Useful that we use this one trail, La Cloche Silhouette Trail in Killarney. It's an 80K trail. We've done it a few times now hiking. Um, I feel like it's almost like the perfect way to kind of see what our gear situation is and like what it, how it's improved and how we've slowly been, you know, changing things up because it's the same trail.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we were pretty, and I would say still are pretty newbie beginner in the whole camping and outdoorsmanship outdoors person ship and yeah it's it's been good to have to do this in different formats this one was probably our most probably our most uh, maybe other than when we did Algonquin last year but they you know actually backpacking right not sort of like racing through it and totally and really surviving based on like running away from having to do any sort of major cooking or you know like we had rain this time so you sort of have to set up a bit of shelter and there was a fire built uh so there was was not by us no we sort of did other stuff while that was happening but yeah so it's good It's, it's 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 fun being a beginner i think right if you can get over that hump and
1: yeah so if you are interested in hearing sort of like how we've been slowly upgrading our camping and backpacking and hiking kit i think you know i talk like not just about what pieces we got but also like how we chose each thing that we've upgraded and why we chose it and how we kind of figured out that like cost per use and like figured out what made sense for us. You know, we're we're not backpackers. We're not planning on doing this every single month for like weeks on end. So there's a bit of like give and take when it comes to how to choose what gear you're getting. And I think that applies to like pretty much any any discipline you're doing, right? Like I'm always tempted to go out and buy all of the latest and greatest.
0: Sure. Yeah. And we also just had Sarah Quackenbush on. Yeah. And she talked about her, you know, learning about different things and making gear and so forth so that episode actually did really well i know some of the wide angle podium people were really excited about it because they were in a similar they want to try a bit of camping or backpacking or whatever so i
1: love i'm still just like obsessed with they don't pack your fears quote <laughs> I, I love know, that so much that
0: is, that's like a you could put that on a wall yeah, yeah. exactly yeah uh anyway. That's just reminded me of a funny thing. So at the gym they have a quote and it's something like, No one else can set you on fire or something. Oh uh, yeah. Really but weird. but it's peeling and it looks <laughs> one of the kids was like, Does that sign say set yourself on fire? <laughs> <laughs> just like, uh no but anyhow that's an aside
1: kind of motivational i guess <laughs> yeah, it's just
0: sort of i looked up and I, I knew what the like it had been up there for a while and then i was just like oh yeah it sort of does because it the, the they're separated it's and that's the,
1: like you have to set yourself on fire or something Something like, like yeah. you're
0: the only one that can do it or something um but yeah the like board is the, those three words like set set yourself on for so forwards yeah. are coming off so anyhow okay
1: so here's here's my motivational set here's my segue here uh speaking of motivation and finding motivation in in difficult times uh today's guest Haley smith is on sort of um and Haley is one of the top mountain bike racers in canada she's I would yeah.
0: say in the world it's safe to say yeah she was on the podium in uh the Czech last year yeah no yep, yep, and some top tens and yeah
1: yeah it's been really cool kind of seeing her her come up through the ranks and you know slowly steadily make her way into being yeah like one of the world's I was saying,
0: best. yeah I remember her as a much younger cyclist uh just coming into it and you know I think she would even say and maybe does say in the episode that you know her skills and you know abilities as a cycle. she was like us as campers and backpackers right like just starting out and very meagerly and just you know trying to learn it and make your way and she's had ups and downs i think it's probably been a good 16 years i think if i remember right um like it's been a Pretty while close, she's been yeah. going at this right and so that podium was not instant right and i think for the athlete, for the parents, it's important to remember that, like, yeah, it's exciting to see Haley, you know, up at the front, and the, that if you watch that Czech race, which if you're looking for something exciting mountain biking to watch, that's a great one to pull up. Um, you know, she's back in sixth, seventh, and then slowly moves up, and everyone you can hear them screaming at the TV screen, right? And that was that's you know, sixth, the better part of sixteen years, if not her life, right, getting ready for that moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so we we talk a ton about kind of leading up to that moment mentally and then even after that moment mentally because mm-hmm. i think almost harder than getting to that right really now
0: that well you've been fifth or third or whatever place you were right and now yeah what?
1: Once you've hit the high point, like, where do you go from there? And I mean, she talks about it. She struggled a bit last year mm-hmm. almost because of that.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and we talk about like not she feels like she didn't give herself enough time to absorb that and celebrate that. She just kind of went right into, OK, what's the next thing? What's the next right. thing?
0: And, and Catherine Penderel, I think, talks about that as well with some of the Olympics and her world championships and success. Right. And where she went into the second Olympics, you know, just like she had to win. That was the only way right and she went in with this confidence and stuff right and then that ended up backfiring on her uh, as far as pressure and I think Kate Courtney when she was on also talked a bit about maybe or was it too close to the world championship she won
1: Uh, I think it was still, she was talking about that a bit because she was about to head into Marathon World Championships, which was going to be kind of a different kettle of fish. Yeah. Um, So one thing Haley and I talk about that I absolutely love, so I did a whole article over on Consummate Athlete about it, so you can go to consummateathlete.com to find it, is this idea of a confidence journal. Um, So Haley keeps a lot of different kinds of journals, um, and one of the ones she keeps is A confidence one where she writes down when something when she does something good and that could be something really small like oh i you know hit this obstacle slightly better today on my ride or you know i actually made it through my last interval feeling good or any of those like little wins right you know she writes them down so she can kind of come back to them when she isn't feeling that confidence and i think you know we talk a ton about keeping gratitude journals like that's super trendy right now but i love the idea of also keeping a confidence journal
0: Yeah, it's very easy to frame your week around like the lowest moments, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I find that even with myself, like I've been, you know, as I say, a little tired the last couple of weeks, but then there's lots of good things, right? Like my wheelies over COVID have gotten like probably four or five, and I was decent at wheelies as far as things go, but like four or five times better. Like I can throw pretty good wheelies now and I just brush over that. I don't even like think, and then yesterday I was like, I mean, I have gotten a lot better at wheelies, right? And I don't know, you just can't, there's going to be low moments like that is the nature of training right it's like anything else investing or days at work or you know how you feel right like if you feel amazing all the time it's probably not great training Um, so I think that's a great idea to try and record that somehow Uh, whether it's like a daily journal you know you see the what are those journals like not confidence but what is the thing where you appreciation gratitude gratitude that's the one we did that in Spain with the, the kids, every the athletes, every, every night, and I thought that was good. We wrote it up on a board, and some of them were jokes, but um, some of it was good, right? Like you just didn't really think, you know, oh, we are pretty fortunate.
1: Yeah. No, I've been doing yeah. that even when I'm teaching yoga with, uh, with some kids in the, the local gym here. I've been doing yoga outside, and at the end of each session, before we do our shavasana, I have them go around and say one gratitude. and I think it really sets a good tone. Cool. They all find it doofy, but well, I
0: think we should listen to Haley about this. I think we should um, and gain some more perspective. I think too for someone who was in line for the Olympics and is still doing awesome things. So let's let's hear more about that.
1: All right. Enjoy this interview with Haley Smith. All right, Haley Smith. Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you've been on my, like, people we need to talk to at some point in the near future list for a while. But this is sort of one of the first times where, you know, we've all had a few months where we've we've been home. So I feel like the first thing I want to ask you is, like, how has it felt to have, like, the first summer in I don't even know how long with no travel?
2: It's, yeah, it's weird. Like, I've actually never... I've never had a summer like this, um, just because when I left high school, I was already racing pretty much full time. Yeah. So I've never never experienced a summer in, in one place, and obviously, I wish that I was racing, but there's been so many cool things that have come out of it, and overall, it's actually been a positive experience, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we'll... We'll come back to talking about that, but I actually kind of want to backtrack because you're you're one of those interesting people who to me who's been like athletic her whole life and then found cycling, but you didn't start in cycling, right? You started was it hockey?
2: Yeah, so I well I started in dance actually. I started dancing when I was 3, and then I picked up hockey when I was 5 or 6, and then from that point I just did like every sport I could possibly get my hands on. So I didn't actually fall into cycling at the recreational level until I was about 15, and then I started to do it more seriously when I went to university.
1: Okay, now dance and hockey, I feel like those are two <laughs> completely opposite sports to get into. How how did you end up doing both of those?
2: I couldn't tell you. I know that I asked my parents to be enrolled. They never enrolled us in sports unless we or activities unless we asked too. Mm-hmm. so I must ask at some point I have no idea why my interest in either was geeked. Um but I mean they are so contradictory but at the same time they're also very complimentary and I could see that yeah, yeah I think I just coming from a small town those are like sports are kind of what you do they're kind of like the option for for recreation and for just having fun and um, I think dance and hockey were just the two biggest things in my town and I ended up liking
1: both of them. And I feel like that's such a good way to be friends with like the girls and the boys because traditionally you'd be mostly girls and dance and then mostly boys and hockey. You'd
2: think but I never um, I was really really small when I was little okay. um, and I so I never played in a boys league because I, my mom actually made me wait until I was old enough to enroll in the girls league for hockey because she was afraid I would get squished No. <laughs> <Aww. laughs> and anyway so I actually um, I only ever played with with girls in in hockey and those are still some of my best friends to this day
1: oh cool um, so how did you how did you transition out of hockey and being sort of this all-around I'm gonna play every sport into I'm going to be a cyclist because I feel like cycling has actually I've noticed tends to be like a sport that people get into when they aren't into group sports but it sounds like you were you were into that like team dynamic
2: yeah actually the team dynamic is still something that I I definitely have a little bit of it with Norco but I miss I miss that group of like 20 girls that are ready-made friends I do really miss that yeah um, being in cycling but um Honestly, it was just that I had started to dabble in cycling throughout high school um, as I was kind of overcoming a, a mental illness, and it was that was kind of like my my therapy, if you will. Cycling was, mm-hmm. and then when I went to university, um, there's not there wasn't really an opportunity for me to play organized sports because there was just a lot of barriers. Like yeah, I couldn't, couldn't fit my hockey equipment in my dorm room, and I couldn't get to the arena and even if I wanted to. Um, but I could fit, I could (laughs) take the wheels off my bed, I had my bed on stilts, and I could Mm -hmm. slide my bike under my bed, so it could fit in my room, and then I could go whenever I wanted. I didn't have to adhere to a schedule, or like pay a fee to get ice time, or any of that, so it was just like the lowest barrier sport I could do, and luckily I was kind of good at it at that point, so I kind of just naturally fell into pursuing that, and I still played a little bit of intramurals in other sports, but kind of leaving the other um, team competition sports
1: behind, I guess. Okay. So what made you get competitive in cycling then? Did you just, like, miss the competition from the other sports so much that you were like, all right, fine, I'm racing?
2: I did. I actually started racing. the first, Pretty much the first bike ride I ever did was a race, Um, and it was because my brother's high school team needed the girl for their team relay. So I was like, well, I get to skip a day of school, so I'll jump <laughs> up and do it. And I was I was fast because I was fit from other sports, but technically so, so, so terrible. Um, <laughs> anyway, so my first experience was a race. And then from that point, um, I I was coached. I was being coached by Eric Orchelle, who also had a background in hockey and is obviously a cycling coach and cyclist. So he was kind of training me to be a... A good athlete in both um, both disciplines, both sports, and he hosts a Thursday night race series in my hometown. So I started doing that, just kind of it was kind of like the house league league throughout the summer that I would go participate in, mm-hmm. and then I just very, I really progressively and naturally fell into varying or into increasingly. Um, more competitive levels of racing. So I was just doing local stuff for fun, and then I went to a few O-Cups, and eventually I went to a Canada Cup, and so on. Um, So by the time I went to university, I had 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 a taste of international racing, um, and I just uh, kind of decided to pursue that more.
1: Okay. What did that look like, doing university while suddenly being like, yep, I'm gonna be really serious about this racing thing, too?
2: I think, I honestly think that it, it made, it kept me sane, and it actually probably improved my university experience. Um, I really am not a partier. I'm a little bit socially anxious, and going to school was a very challenging and, um, like, uncomfortable thing for me because it put me so far out of my social comfort zone, Mm
1: -hmm. so
2: I think the... The racing and the cycling actually gave me a bit of a purpose and a bit of a like a safety net, so I didn't feel as much pressure to go out three nights a week or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it, it kept me on task. It kept me kind of like adhering to a schedule and a study schedule. So, I, I mean, I was busy. I definitely was busy, but um, I think it. I think pursuing cycling at the same time as a degree made both. Yeah, Um, And it also helped me find a good group of people to be friends with because because of my schedule and because of the fact that I wasn't going out all the time, I ended up becoming friends with people who understood that and respected it and as such have now become lifelong friends because we just had, you know, similar interests and similar um, views on what's fun, I -hmm. guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's funny when I look back at like the I have like the yeah, friends that I'd say like are BC, like before cycling and then the, the friends that are after and very few people from BC are still really in my life at all because yeah, like they were they were of that like partier kind of sort of people and yeah, we just didn't really have anything in common once I went mm-hmm. over to the dark side and found cycling. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, how did you, so women in cycling, I always find this really interesting. Like, it's really hard to make it as a professional racer in cycling as a female. How did you make the the decision to be like, okay, this is what I'm actually going to pursue right now, instead of, you know, trying to kind of balance that with like a, you know, job in finance, like somehow some, every other, like every professional cyclist is doing, um, what made you be a, willing to go all in on it?
2: I think it like like my how I said that um, the level of racing I did was very progressive. My outlook on my potential and my career trajectory was also very progressive. Mm-hmm. When I um, like when I was in university, I was lucky that I had some provincial funding, and eventually I had some federal funding. Um, I had also I was a like. I would say I had a, a very high degree of logistical and technical and equipment support from Norco. I was on the team at that point, but um, we weren't the professional team. There was no salary Okay. at that point in time. Um, but as we started to perform better and as, as the team started to grow, then so did our like career aspects or career potential with the team. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like, like I didn't finish school and be like, okay, I'm going to get a professional contract and be a bike racer. It was more like, well, it's, it's working right now. I'm not you know making money, but I can do this, and I can only do this for so long. So um, I went for it, I guess, and every year became more and more of a reality until so now I've realized that it is my career. But five years ago, I was probably... Wouldn't have said that, or even have said that it might become a career, even though it was on its way to becoming that. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess that's am saying, and I was very lucky that I did find Norco and that we developed a strong relationship. And mm-hmm. That's been that's been what's made my career. Yeah,
1: it's so interesting to me because you know, like that takes such a high level of confidence and self belief um but i know you know you've you've had a lot of like mental hurdles and struggles in the past so i mean c- can you kind of talk about like how you've how you've sort of come to terms with being this you know really badass professional athlete <laughs> like
2: with like i don't think i am to terms with that <laughs> i don't know feel like that and i i would actually say that i i'm the opposite of what you said i think that i have a very high degree of insecurity and maybe a lack of confidence and I think that's maybe why I am so driven, and why I do this, is because Ooh. I don't feel confident, and I'm I'm kind of constantly looking to prove to myself that I can do this, and that it's a worthy pursuit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I definitely don't feel like I have a high degree of belief or or confidence, and that's kind of that's kind of why this whole thing is fulfilling, because whenever there is a breakthrough, and whenever I do have some sort of objective success it feels like it's just really rewarding because it's like uh yeah I'm just kind of like proving the doubter in my head wrong I guess
1: okay oh that's so interesting I was just listening to a sports psych kind of talking about almost that exact thing they were sort of talking about like common myths in like sports psych and one was that you know champions always believe that they can win every race or like they go into every race believing they can win and he was like no like absolutely not like that might work for some people but a lot of other athletes thrive not really being you know sure of that and not really being super sure of themselves
2: yeah yeah i've never felt like i was gonna win a race
1: (laughs) (laughs) usually at the start line i'm wondering if i will
2: finish honestly
1: Yep, I I know that feeling, but I I am finishing a lot less high up than you in in most races. So especially when we're on cross country bikes, but that's beside the <laughs> point. Um, but that said, you've had some pretty major successes in the last couple of years. I mean, you know, we we have to talk about that podium finish at a World Cup. Was that was that last summer? Now I yeah, the years... it was May
2: twenty nineteen.
1: Oh my goodness, the years are all very kerfuffled for me right now um okay so how did that feel and how did that uh did that change your self-belief at all like did that change the landscape of what was possible for you
2: it definitely it definitely did but I would almost say that that result happened because of the short track I'd done on the Friday so two days before the XC when I managed to come third um, I had a breakthrough ride in the short track, and I rode at the front. I I faded at, in the final lap to I think I, I don't know, maybe like somewhere between tenth and fourteenth. I think I finished, but for the first, you know, nine of ten laps or whatever we did, I was in there and I was in the thick of it and I was making making stuff happen. Mm-hmm. And I finished that short track and I was like, why couldn't I do it? Um, and I think that it's not that I believed I. Like, it would happen or I believed I would win, but I, I thought that it was a possibility. I had begun to entertain the possibility that I could be on the podium. So that kind of like, yeah, that just opened up a lot of doors for the race on the Sunday. it, it, it didn't so much, um, kind of like removed the barrier, I suppose. And Mm -hmm. then it happened and I was in disbelief and it was like, it was a moment that I will never be able to replicate again because it was the first time it happened and I can't put all the emotions into words. Um, but I think that, yeah, that was just, that was a tipping point And it was, um, yeah, I just, I think it that uh, some sort of block that I had had in my brain um, got shattered pretty good that day.
1: Yeah. No, that was, that was the coolest race to watch. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was so fun. <laughs> um, we actually had talked about going over for that race this year, like just to watch it because we were like, this is going to be such a good freaking race. Um, obviously sad that it did not end up happening again. <laughs> yeah. um, so how did that, how did that change the rest of the season for you? Cause I think a lot of people like don't think about sort of after the big result, sort of yeah. how that's going to impact like subsequent races.
2: I think it actually, I wasn't prepared for it. And I think, um, I'm, I'm someone who feels emotions very intensely. I have really high highs and really low lows. Mm -hmm. And after that race, I don't think I gave myself enough time to process it. And it was just like, it was just this massive high. And then I, I came down from it and I really actually struggled. Um, there were a couple things like I, I was coming down from the high of getting engaged and, and like feeling just on top of the world right up until that result. And then Mm -hmm. nothing collapsed. It's just that you can't sustain that level of, um, like, like adrenal arousal for that long. Yeah. Um, So I had a bit of a, a crash and I actually ended up getting injured as well, which could have happened because I was emotionally tired. Um, anyways, so the rest of the season was a little bit like, rocky and I felt like I had kind of a tenuous grip on um, my composure and even my health a little bit Um, I did have some other good results but I also had some really terrible ones Um, yeah it was a little bit I I had some challenges after that result and I think it was just that I I wasn't prepared for the cost of winning even though it wasn't just like you know what I mean
1: Yeah, no, that makes total sense because, I mean, it's the body can't differentiate between good and bad stress, really. Like it's, it's, you know, the same hormones that are happening. So yeah, like when you're super excited, it's the same feeling as nerves. And that's great on a start line when you can convince yourself, like, you know, just turn the nerves into excitement, tell yourself you're excited, not scared. Um, Yeah. But that's not very helpful when you're, you know, you've got like two months of like super happy like yay everything's amazing like you're you're kind of bound for a crash so how have you how have you kind of learned to deal with being that like the what is the highly sensitive person where it's like you feel all the emotions so much how have you learned to kind of stay a little more level or have you
2: i think i actually think the error that i made was that i didn't celebrate enough and i didn't take a break
1: Mm -hmm. um
2: so, going forward, um, that's what I would do differently. I would actually like, I would, I would like really celebrate a moment like that. I think um, after that race, I got home and I was kind, I was kind of trying to make sure that I stayed on task and refocus for the next race. And I, we traveled on, we raced on the Sunday, traveled home to Canada on the Monday, and then on the Tuesday, I was back doing training. I didn't give myself enough time to, like, enjoy it and then also get over it. Uh So I think the key for me, being someone who feels those things, is to actually let myself feel them into, um, yeah, a little bit more celebration and then definitely more recovery. um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's funny. It's something I've been thinking about a lot this week because I just had the second Shred Girls book come out on Tuesday, which was Congrats. very thank you. Um, it was super exciting. Except I was like, I was literally on like Tuesday morning, sitting down and like working on another book that I'm working on, and I was just like, I can't believe I am not taking like I, I just didn't take any time to just be psyched that this book came out. I just like moved on to the next and, like getting, getting the to-do list done. Like, wait a second. So I'm with you. I feel like, especially I'm going to say, I think it's more women. Like we're really bad at celebrating when good things happen for us. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay. So you also have gotten very much into, you know, the, the yoga meditation side of things. When did you kind of start shifting into doing more of that?
2: I actually, so my, if for anyone who doesn't know, I have a history with an eating disorder and with anxiety, and this all came to a head when I was 13. Um, in grade 9, I was hospitalized for a couple months with um, like a, a severe restrictive eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, in the recovery process of that, my aunt, who was a Pilates instructor kind of dabbling in yoga, actually, I think she was she had done quite a lot of yoga at that point, but. Um, yeah, it was like 2008 and she took me to yoga and that was kind of my first rush with it and it was my first um, experience with how practicing mindfulness could help me have a quieter brain and help me just be more, um, be more stable, be a little bit less affected by the turmoil that i experienced in my brain mm-hmm. anyway so it was yeah so for i guess 12 years i've been working on that um you know progressively like any meditation or mindfulness journey in like a very um progressive way and like it's just gotten a little bit more in depth all the time as i've gone through it um but it, it's it was a key part of my recovery and I don't think I would have been able to like reach a reach a state of mental equilibrium if you can call it that if I hadn't begun that practice um Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yeah and so what is what does it look like now are you do you have sort of meditations you do on a daily basis do you do like a certain amount of yoga every day do you do it once a week like do you have any structure to it or is it just kind of like uh i do what i feel like as as i feel so moved to do
2: it's quite unstructured um i do i i sit in silence for 10 minutes every day um sometimes it's a guided meditation sometimes it's not just based on how i'm feeling mm-hmm. um definitely some days it's a lot harder to get myself to sit and do it than others and I definitely end up skipping some days um but yeah that's that's the only thing that I would say is structured and then other than that um I think if I look at my day um as an objective observer I do end up doing stretching and or some type of yoga every day but I don't really consider it as that um it's just kind of like in the evenings i'll find myself doing that without really realizing that i had it, like it wasn't an activity i set out to right um but anyway so the physical element of it is an aspect of pretty much every day and then in non-covid times i'm i'm at yoga classes several times a week whenever i can swing it nice um, it just the community and the being in a being in a room where Right now, it's it's very anxiety-producing to think about, yeah. <laughs> like being in a room with all those other people, doing, um, who are all just kind of sharing that energy and that vibe. That's really um, like, comforting to me. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty big part of my life normally.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how different it feels doing yoga virtually versus doing it in person. I was doing, like, I've been doing some yoga teaching where I've been doing it just, like, virtually, and it's me talking to the computer, and I feel like a crazy person. Um, (laughs) I feel like a fake influencer, I keep saying, where I'm, like, pretending that I'm teaching to a bunch of people, but there are people watching. I just can't see them. Um, And then today I was teaching an outside, like, an outdoor class, and it was actually just lovely to see people in real life and it was a completely different feeling to it and I realized how much I missed that yeah um so I mean on the note of COVID times so how did you how did you readjust when suddenly boom there's there's no racing and especially like I mean now we kind of have a uh, no, actually, no. Mountain bikers have no handle, especially at, like at your level of like what's what's coming. So, how are you handling the uncertainty of like maybe there's racing in the fall?
2: Uh. <laughs> I think when it first happened, I I think a lot of people immediately either stopped training or had like a, a bit of a crisis or they they struggled with it. And when it happened at first for me, I just started to train harder I just I figured that at some point it would get resolved and we would be back racing so this was an opportunity to get faster Mm -hmm. so for like like literally probably nine weeks I went really hard in training um and then then it kind of hit me that this might be a very long-term thing and I definitely experienced a little bit of like sadness and not so much frustration, but just like anxiety over the uncertainty of it all and not knowing and feeling like I didn't have a direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I still have that, like probably one day every two weeks I'll have a weird day where I'm very, I'm very like end of the worldy and I don't, uh, I don't what am I even doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but For the most part, I think, um, we had talked about this over email a little bit, I think, but, um, I, I don't really think of myself as just a cyclist and I also have goals set that are very long-term. So no matter kind of what happens with race racing this year, whether or not there's races, whether I'm at race venues, it doesn't really shake my identity foundation so much and it also doesn't change what I'm what my long game is. So I think I've been able to handle it relatively well.
1: Yeah. It's I love being able to hear that from someone like you because there's, you know, so many people who like and I I understand where they're coming from, but like, you know, their their goal race for the summer was canceled, but they're, you know, masters athletes or junior athletes who, you know, have school and have like jobs and you know outside of cycling and everything so to hear it from like a professional racer that's like no it's it's gonna be fine I can focus on the long term I feel like it's really good for the people who who are also feeling sad about their races because it's like no this is this is your job and it's on hold right now
2: yeah and everything is on hold for everybody yeah but at the same time life isn't on hold life yes. is still happening and there's a lot of there's a lot of, this is just an opportunity in so many ways. I know people are probably sick of hearing that, um, but there's a lot of things that I've been able to do that I would never have been able to do. Um, and actually, so one of the places that we frequently stay in Victoria when we go, um, it's an apartment owned by this um, an older couple who, the, the man, um, Max Gray, he was an Olympian for New Zealand in 1964 in Tokyo, and oh, cool. he, I was talking to him about this, and he was in cycling. He went. He went for the road race. Okay. Um, but I was talking to him about this, and he was like, "Wow, this is like this is such an amazing opportunity for you. When would you ever have a full year where you don't have to experience the fatigue of um, of racing, of travel, of the emotions of a race season?" And just get to have a break so that you can extend your career. Like he was like, "This is this is probably going to be what makes your career." Being able to have this break, and Ooh. at that point, a lot of people, this was when the Olympics had just been postponed, and at that point, a lot of people were obviously kind of freaking out. And to have that perspective from him, I was like, "Oh yeah, I guess." I mean, this really, this isn't this isn't that bad. COVID's very bad, but yeah. like my personal situation not that bad. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that's such a good perspective. I love that. Um, and I mean, so we talked a little bit about this and this is like what you and I were emailing about, this idea of being an athlete despite races not happening. So, I mean, you have such a competitive sport background and like you said your your first real ride was a race. So, how have you kind of shifted to this super healthy approach where you're an athlete even if races aren't happening. Well, I think,
2: I mean, part of my mental illness was a massive identity crisis surrounded on like, perfectionism and my self-worth was very deeply entrenched in my performance as a student and as an athlete. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it almost killed me. So I've spent a long time working on um, developing a more even-keeled approach to life and sport, um, life and sport. Um, And I think, yeah, one of the things that I've been working on for a long time with a sports psychologist is about identity and how you, how you, um, how I view myself, how I view my, my value and my, my kind of like my place in the world. And in order for me to have sustainable, a sustainable level of performance on the bike and to have a sustainable level of happiness and stable mental state. I just, I've learned that I can't define myself just based on racing because it's only one tiny little facet of the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Even if I weren't, like, there are lots of people out there who are athletes who never compete, ever. And when you look at it that way, you realize that competing is only one thing about being an athlete. There's, like, at the very heart of it for me, being a cyclist and being an athlete is just about being able to push my limits every day that's kind of what what it is mm-hmm. my physical limits my mental limits my emotional limits and though that hasn't changed I can still do that every day I can still engage meaningfully with the um albeit virtually or at a distance I can still engage meaningfully with my riding community and um and the sport community so that's. has something that I've been working on that has kept, um, kind of kept part of my athlete identity fulfilled. Um, but beyond that, you just, I mean, sport is, sport will always be in my life, but I will only be, um, I will only be a professional cyclist for a short window of my lifespan. I intend to be an athlete forever. And I just don't, I just don't think, uh, a break in racing will change that. Like it's, it doesn't, um, it doesn't really shake who I am or who how I think of myself or how I think of my occupation because there's just so many other things that are involved in that identity.
1: Oh, I love that so much. Um, and before, so I want to ask you about this, this local challenge and trail building stuff you've been up to, but I also want to ask like a slightly leading question we talked about. Uh, meditation and mindfulness during the day. But I know when I asked you about athletic identity, you were like, Oh, cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna like journal about this topic. Um, Mm. Do you find like has journaling been helping you through this? And how long you've been doing it? What's what's that look like for you?
2: Yeah, definitely. I've, I've fallen off the bandwagon a little bit recently, just because I've been quite busy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've been journaling is huge. I've been I think it's. it felt very forced when I first started to do it. Like, if I go back and, and read my very early journal entries, it's like, Dear Diary, this is what I did today. Yes. It was a nice <laughs> day. It was stunning. Like, very just factual and um, just kind of like stilted and not really, doesn't have a whole lot of substance. But over time, it gradually became like a, a way of self-therapy, I suppose. Yeah. And it's been super helpful. Um, it took a long time for it to feel that way and to feel like I actually benefited from it. But I now have, well, I probably have 13 years of journals um, saved. So I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of like uh, archived introspection <laughs> on my shelf.
1: I love it. And you're, you're like a paper journal person, you're not like oh, keeping, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love a good journal. I have like a drawer of blank ones because I collect them basically. Yeah. It's the best. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a couple different
2: kinds. I have what I call just like the word vomit journal. And yeah. I have, those are just like free form, sometimes I'll use prompts, but mostly just free form whatever, whatever I want to write about. And then I have um, a little confidence journal that's it's just like this little, black moleskin book that every page has something, um, has something in it that would be confidence inspiring that I did. So like one page might have like a PB in a set of intervals. The next page might have like a, a conflict that I successfully resolved or like, anyway, so like every everything, something that, um, I should be confident or, or should help instill confidence in myself. And then I have a third type of journal, which is like the one line a day kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I have, um, so every page in the journal is what day is today. Today is the 23rd. So the July 23rd has its own page and it was like five years on that one page. Anyways. Oh, neat. Um, on, on In that journal I have just what I did that day, what I did for training, because I don't trust training sheets not to at some point um, erase all my data because I'm skeptical of technology. It's so um, funny.
1: Peter and I were saying that exact same thing like yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's a terrifying thing when you realize you've you've put all of this data in this system that you have no backup for.
2: Exactly. Yeah, and that's actually this is how I started training when Eric Rochelle was my coach. He he asked me to start keeping a training journal, so I have all of those right right back to probably two thousand nine. Oh wow, uh,
1: that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> Uh, that's, uh, I love that you can look back on that. Um, yeah,
2: it's a, it's, it's a cool exercise actually.
1: I'm yeah. loving that like daily one. I, I'm like, I might need to start doing that. That's because that way every day you get to just see back like a few years. I'm just like, Oh, yeah. huh, I yeah. was here. I was here.
2: Exactly. And you can tell if I have a blank day, you can tell that it was a really bad day because I couldn't <laughs> myself
1: to write anything
2: down. Uh but other days I write so much in it that like I I over I overuse the space. I use too much space for that year.
1: <laughs> Guess that's a good problem if it's a really good day. Yeah. <laughs> uh all right, and talk to me about you decided to put together this local challenge. Um tell me all about it and what prompted you to do it because that's you added a lot of work to your plate. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so Lesby and I, um, my partner Andrew, Les Bronx, um, we had decided, well, we had talked about this quite a while ago, that we thought it would be cool to do something that helped people or gave people some motivation to get out and like set a goal, basically, but we both really, we're not super fond of the actual virtual racing, like, if we're going to race, we want it to be outside, and we want it to be real world, and we yeah. want it to be on trails and that kind of thing. Anyway, so when we were finally able to leave Victoria to come head back out east when it was safe for us to make that road trip, um, we planned it in the car on the, on the drive home. And we decided that we could do this like three week um, Strava challenge. So basically what we've done is we called it the Durham Epic because I'm from the Durham region and it's in Durham forest. Um, But it's three weeks long and each week, we created a segment that people could download the gpx file for and then ride at their leisure and upload to strava and we thought it would just be like a fun little like we, we thought maybe 50 people would do it and it would just be like a kind of underground strava competition that like basically just for um for like ego purposes almost like just bragging rights on the leaderboard but it ended up being, we have like 350 members in our Strava group. Nice. Um, it's pretty, it got, it got a lot bigger than we were expecting, but our sponsors got behind it and they donated a whole bunch of prizing. So um, every week there's a, a prize for the leaderboard winners, but then there's a bunch of prizing for um, just participation. And some of that we've given away um, just in a random draw prize, but some of them are just like standout rides from every week. So For example, last week was, it was a long stage, it was 20k, and it was 500 meters of climbing, and it was very challenging to navigate the route, because we're not being, it's not sanctioned, it's not like a real thing, so we're not putting signed signed out. Anyways, a lot of people had trouble navigating it, but there was this one woman who, um, she had just started mountain biking about two months ago, and she was out there for a while. Like It took her two hours, but she successfully navigated it, and she sent a message to say, like I'm so proud of myself, kind of thing. Anyway, so she she got a prize because for Lantern Rouge, um, and just because she pushed her limits, which was really what we wanted to encourage people to do when we started it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we just wanted to make it so that there was a sense of community and being connected, even though there's no in-person racing going on. And it's ended up being a lot more fulfilling and a lot more fun than we ever thought it would be it ended up being more work because there were so many people but that's been great too
1: yeah and you were mentioning before we started recording you've been doing some some trail building for this week's route
2: we so no we we haven't done any it's been so dry i don't know what it's been like i'm assuming it's been dry and pretty dry well. yeah <laughs> um but in in durham forest the soil is just sand and the trails have been absolutely worked like there's there's that yeah. It feels like you're riding on a beach. Um, anyway, so we just it, one of the builds today coincided with a uh, with our rest day, so we went out and we helped, um, kind of just armor the trails basically.
1: Okay. And
2: it was it was fun. It was we haven't we don't get to trail build very often, and we don't get to do um, enough of it. So it was pretty fun to be able to like contribute to the community and the building community a little bit, but.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. that's what I was going to say. Like, that's such a, that's another like unique opportunity that, I mean, what other point in time have you been able to do something like that?
2: Exactly. I like maybe probably the last time we went on a build was like a couple years ago, just because we haven't been able to fit them in.
1: Yeah. Uh, and okay. Now, now I have to ask, um, you know, your, Lesby, your partner is also a professional cyclist. Um, how do you guys manage balancing that both like every day and then especially like race day? I
2: think, I think it's, it's, it, it's been what it's been a reality forever because we met on the race team and we've True. both been races are like our whole lives or our whole, um, relationship. Um, I think usually communication is key. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't, wanna, if you need time to ride alone or if you don't want to ride with the other person, being able to straight-up say that is really important. Um, we also have devised a few ways that we can ride together. So for example, Lesby will ride his gravel bike with really high volume, slower tires, and I'll ride my road bike, and that essentially makes us the same speed. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. Um, whenever we have an interval day, we're, we're coached by the same person. So we usually have very similar, if not the same workouts. So on interval days, we'll ride to the workout separately, but then we meet and we get to set the stage for each other and kind of, um, make it feel like a little bit of a training group, do the workout and then ride home separately. Um, so we almost, we're able to treat our, treat uh, each other like teammates, which is quite helpful. Um, there's obviously days where we get on each other's nerves and (laughs) we don't ride together. Um, But for the most part, we've been pretty lucky that it's just kind of worked. And it's actually been a cornerstone of our relationship that we, we do this together. Yeah. Um, Race day is a little more challenging. I know um, usually Lesby doesn't watch my race or, and he doesn't watch the Red Bull coverage as well. But for example, in Nova Mesto last year when I had the podium, he was, he, r- he raced like an hour and a half after me but he was on the side of the track just screaming the whole time <laughs> um, but usually we, we kind of keep it we keep it separate and we keep it professional at races that's kind of our the yeah. way we get
1: through it yeah it's it's tough and I find like it's very like unfair to women who are in the situation because we always race first so the the guys are always warming up during our race and then yeah like we can go cheer for them. But usually, yeah. I'll, I'll totally admit, I'm usually, like, so irritated that Peter wasn't out cheering for me that I, like, I'll cheer <laughs> for him. But, like, I'm going to be grumpy about it. And that's my, why my we race is, different disciplines now.
2: <laughs> my move is to wherever we are for a race. I, right after my race, I go and I get, like, often I end up getting a pizza and then I park my butt with with the whole pizza yes. on the side of the course and I cheer for lesbian one spot while I eat. That's my move.
1: That's a good move. I... I deeply appreciate that. Especially a full (laughs) pizza. Really like that. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, I feel like that is actually a perfect note to sort of wrap up on. So how can people follow along with all of your adventures, even though adventures currently are very localized adventures?
2: Well, I mean, we do our best to share everything on Instagram, really. Mm if they're into the Strava thing, uh, join the Durham Epic Strava Club. And even if you're not able to come ride the stages, you can kind of follow along. And it's been fun. Lots of people have been in the group and just kind of like almost spectating on Strava. been mm-hmm. cool. Um, I love it. And then other than that, just our my main sponsor, Norco Bicycles, we, um, we haven't been able to do any sort of um, video content for a little bit with COVID, but we... That's always part of, uh, part of our um, media strategy is doing videos and such. So following Norco and the Norco Factory Team accounts are, are a good bet. But, yeah, primarily Instagram and then Red Bull TV when we get back to racing. <laughs>
1: Thanks so much for tuning into the consummate athlete podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please do us a huge favor, leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us bring on, you know, great new guests and yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on the interwebs, um, at consummateathlete.com at consummateathlete on Instagram. Uh, and I am at Molly J. Herford on Instagram and Twitter. And Peter is at Peter Glassford. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week.
0: The Slow Ride Podcast. Three idiots who are usually wrong. The Slow Ride Podcast. The Titanium of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. It's like if David Vanderpoel had a podcast. The Slow Ride Podcast. The Zwift Racing of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. Find the real advice. The Slow Ride Podcast. The Arrow Helmet of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. Sport leader coming through. The Slow Ride Podcast. When's Lance gonna sue us? The Slow Ride Podcast. The experts in French cycling. The Slow Ride Podcast. Official Fan Experience Zone on Facebook. The Slow Ride Podcast, the gravel bike of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, both vertically and horizontally compliant. The Slow Ride Podcast. New episodes every Tuesday.